Welcome to Accidental Gods, to the podcast where we do believe that another world is still possible and that together we can make it happen. I'm Manda Scott, and I spent the first series of this podcast laying out the basic toolkit that we think is essential to making conscious evolution a possibility, which is the entire premise behind the whole Accidental Gods project. This podcast, the website, and the membership programme that lies behind it. Since then, we've been exploring the extraordinary, alive, inspiring intersection where art meets activism, politics meets philosophy, and science meets spirituality, from which we can craft a vision of a future that is generative for all of us, for the human and the more-than-human worlds. My guests this week, and there are two of them, are Eva Schoenfeldt, and Justin Kenrick. Eva is a climate activist working flat out to re-democratise democracy, while Justin is an anthropologist who spends his life with indigenous peoples around the world, exploring different ways of living. Eva and Justin are partners in life and in an astonishing new venture based in Scotland designed to re-evaluate and reshape the way our systems run. Back in August they published a paper on Medium called Politics, Trauma and Empathy, Breakthrough to a Politics of the Heart. And it was one of those papers that stopped my world for a while. I read it for the quality of the writing, for the beauty of the writing, and for the profound depth and insight into how our system works. This was the first time that I had read anybody put down so clearly the direct link between our colonial past, our damage as children, and the damaging ways that our system is destroying us and the whole of the biosphere. It was genuinely, radically moving for me. So I got in touch, and Eva and Justin were kind enough to agree to come on the podcast. We had some interesting issues around the sound. Caro has done her best, But please excuse the occasional glitch, it's well worth listening. So people of the podcast, please welcome Eva Schoenfeld and Justin Kenrick. So Eva and Justin, welcome to the Accidental Gods podcast. And thank you for jumping through all the hoops to get the sound good. That was really kind. How is it up in Scotland? You guys are in Scotland, aren't you? Yeah, we're in in sunny Portobello in Edinburgh. Oh, I am so envious. You have a proper government and it's sunny. Oh, what else could you ask for? Um, are you guys in lockdown? Yeah, yeah. But I mean, it's this strange yeah. lockdown that's not not like the first few months that were kind of really significant. It's this strange yeah. pubs are closed and other things are closed, but uh, everybody's moving around. So. A kind of pretend lockdown. Yeah, exactly. All right. We didn't come here to talk about how, how good or not the Scottish government was versus the English one, although I do envy you, your government. Um, and I am trying to persuade my partner that what we really want to do is is run north and create a shamanic monastery somewhere in the Western Highlands. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm working on that one. We have grandchildren. It's hard. So, um, anyway, we are talking today because you wrote the most amazing paper on Medium that came out in the summer which was the first time that I had read something that so clearly linked human personal trauma Mm. to the trauma of the planet through the link of our entire political processes and how they are structured and how they work. And I read something 
yesterday, which which really spoke to this, which is the problem we have now is that we have Paleolithic emotions feeding into medieval governance structures and the technology of gods. And this is not a good combination. Mm. And I thought that your paper really gave an insight not only into how that happens, but how we can move beyond it. Because understanding the problem is is a small part of the process and moving beyond it is the larger part. So what I'd like to do today is find out, first of all, a little bit about how you came to write the paper, what it is for the people who are driving as they listen to this and, and can't hear it. And then we can look at what can we as individuals and as a collective actually do. So how did you get to here? Well, I guess I kicked off that particular article, although you know, because we're a couple and, and we're increasingly working together, everything that we do in right is sort of part of a hmm. a conversation between us. And, and we tend to kind of leapfrog each other. So one of us will come up with like the next step. Um, and so I, so that was my next step at the time. Um, and I was thinking about how I wrote it the other day and, and remembering that it took me a really long time to start because I kept on wanting to write about politics and and the inner, the you know, our emotional side, which which so you know doesn't doesn't get really clearly seen within politics. It's there in all kinds of sort of demagoguery, but a kind of an, you know a, an actual intelligent understanding of it just isn't on the page. I, I really liked your snappy little quote. Um, it does kind of sum the whole thing up. But I kept on writing about trauma. I kept on going really quickly to, you know, our childhood mm. hurts. And I really didn't want to go there. So every time I started it, I'd be going, no, 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 I, I want to avoid that. People can't people can't cope with that. I can't speak about that. Mm. And every time I wrote it, that's just where I ended up. Mm. So eventually I thought, okay, well, I'm just going to follow this through. Because there's clearly something here that I want to say. Um, and And basically the article you know, formed around that was kind of like, why is that so important? And it sat for quite a long time with just the kind of unpicking of my sense of what was up for ruling class people. Um, but I knew that that was only part of the picture. So there was a kind of later reweaving of, you know, for, for all of us, what that's like. And that's really where the kind of decolonization bit came in, or, or rather the colonial domination mindset bit came in and then I wanted Justin to kind of add his voice to it because well because he's brilliant and he's an anthropologist and he brings you know a huge amount of insight into how we don't have to live how we live that this is one way of zillions of ways that humans have and do continue to do things um so you kind of combed through and added mm. a whole kind of other sections as we... As yes, we I mean, I guess the, the strand that I was bringing into that was around the kind of enclosures of the land down in England and the clearances in Scotland mm. and the, the fact that colonialism has happened to us first before we yeah. did it to other people. Yeah. And we, we've then been used to do the same elsewhere. And just this... Mm. So I loved your initial input, but it, maybe it's not quite right. The Paleolithic is actually perfectly okay. Mm. You know, who we have been and who we can be is really fine. Medieval, yes, absolutely a really brutalising process which never has had a lot of free time for people on the ground. There's a lot of uh, space outside of those structures for, co for the commons to exist until they're enclosed. So it's an interesting one because the politics there starts to become really oppressive. And then you move into this colonial process that, that we've been in 
where we think the only way of doing well is to exploit other beings, other creatures, other people. And we're told that that's the only way that we can be okay. So we moved into that very traumatized place politically, structurally. And then what Eva was pointing to is the way that it's really mirrored inside us. And that, that emotional, empathic sense of self, of our care for others, our sense that who we are is, is made by our good relationships with others, vanishes when you hit the political scene. However well-intentioned you are going into it as a politician, you suddenly become just part of that argy-bargy, push-pull, uh, kind of medieval fight going on there. Yeah, terrible. Have you guys read, um, is it Isabel Harding, Why We Get the Wrong Politicians? No, that sounds... Oh, uh, it's a really interesting. It, it was, I, I thought I knew about politics until I read that book and discovered there is an actual process of soul destruction that goes into even the process of being picked as a prospective parliamentary candidate. Yeah. The the level of humiliation deliberately imposed on potential candidates by, certainly in this country, the two main parties, before they ever even get to stand, mm. pretty much by definition means you've got emotionally broken people running for office. You get the same in academia. You know, you get the same in any or, or in corporations or so on. So it, it is something much deeper than just politics. And it's also there in our infancy, which is kind of what Eva was pointing to. Mm. You know, it's there in how we're brought up that we kind of, we learn to stand on our own two feet before we can walk. You know, we're, we're supposed to be able to be independent and when actually we're not, we're, we're t- utterly relational beings at that stage and are really taking a sense of who we are from how people are treating us. So I guess from the anthropology stuff, you know, the infancy experience is really bizarre in the West. It's a very unusual experience of abandonment that just isn't mm. it, it is present in some other cultures but it's really not widespread so that something like i think we're in contact under 10 percent of the time and um, by the time we're we're kind of you know seven or eight months old we only have less than 10 percent contact and our own kind of psychologists say that if you have less than five percent you're you're experiencing real abandonment so we're very close mm. to our own definition mm. of abandonment so there is what you're describing there for politicians that sense of being humiliated so for an infant having their needs humiliated by being abandoned and not really being being met is there and then that goes through school as well so we're all in a sense seeing politicians as the problem out there is, is part of what we're seeing is the need to shift from of course it's a problem it's a problem because of the whole system being a problem and that involves our own feelings and our own traumas and so there's a need to connect those just before we move on to something else because i may forget to come back to this in your anthropology i i don't know what areas you have studied but do we have models of really fully functioning humanity that are present on the earth just now that we could relearn from how to not destroy our children. Because I have watched Faith's grandchildren being born and they're little forager hunters. Mm. You know, they, they are paleothic, exactly said it. They come out alive and connected to everything. And the domestication of our children, mm. which is exactly what you're describing, that turning them into people who can function in our deeply broken reality. Mm. It's horrible to watch. Um, And I've never been a mother, so I've never had to do it. And I can see, you know, why it happens. But my goodness, it's it's quite distressing. So who have we got that would act as a a mirror or a model for us? Well, I mean, there are are plenty and plenty. I mean, I I work with indigenous peoples, mostly in Africa, but I work in an organization that works with forest peoples across across the world. And you have many, many, many peoples, including our own, (laughs) including people here as well, but but many life ways that are really recognize interdependence as fundamental mm. and, and basically your sense is it's less about for us we think about future generations that's the way that we think about time for most of these people they think about ancestors it's like that you're embodying your ancestors you have respect for your ancestors your ancestors are part of the the land you're in and so your care for your lands your care for yourself and your care for your wider wider family i mean one Ogiek man said to me when he was explaining why being evicted from his land was so awful 
And he said, for us, if you imagine for you uh, being taken away from your partner and your kids and be given a different partner and different kids, if you imagine that, that's like how it is for us being taken from our land. So it's that deep connection to place, which is prevalent throughout. I mean, in Africa, probably 75% of the land is under kind of commons management, you know, in terms of how people, so people are relating to it in that way. But governments claim it all. I mean, it's all claimed by government. But so it's very pervasive. It's very pervasive also in Canada and elsewhere. But, mm. but the thing is, all of these peoples are under complete threat mm. because they're all being smashed because they don't fit into this commodification, you know, process that we're all caught in. But th- looking at the other way around, we're all free of it too. <laughs> you know, we're not, we're not only defined by the system. And I think that's really fundamental to this understanding is we're not just traumatized by a traumatic system. We're actually only traumatized because we're already healthy. There'd be nothing mm. to traumatize if we weren't already healthy. <laughs> you're, mm. If you're traumatized, it's because you are a healthy, whole human being who knows how to relate and who can deeply relate. And you have been hit, but you are not, you're not the trauma. There's something else. That. There's something much deeper than that. So it goes both ways. So, okay. So we have the capacity. We have a, we have an energetic system that is striving to be whole Absolutely. all of the time. And there's a lovely writing on that. Sue Gerhardt writes on that beautifully about early infancy and just how infants really their brain is shaped by the relational quality of how a caregiver will respond to them and just how they have chemicals in the brain, the way they respond to that affection and that kind of responsiveness and just how we really were shaped by that process. So we, we, we really experience that. So it's really possible. But the structures we're in then demand us to, school demands us to be competitive, whereas at home we're supposed to be cooperative. You know, the whole politics demands us to be confrontational, whereas it could demand us to be empathic. So there's a, we have that really deep health and well-being, but we come up against a system which is fundamentally colonial. Okay, I will need to put in the show notes that reference that you just said. So Eva, back to the paper and to your writing of it. And can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you had that depth of understanding of trauma that then came out in the paper? Almost it sounds without you originally intending it. Yeah, I don't know where that came from. (laughs) I I have always been really, really interested in how people work and I think that's partly because there's a there's a kind of little strain of some kind of slight being on the spectrum in my family that I've noticed in my dad in me and in one of my kids and it's not massive it's just like we don't get that kind of social soup that I see people like Justin just swimming in without even knowing it it's like how do you have those conversations that just like flow and make people like you and you know all I want to do is talk about the really deep stuff and I don't I don't get this so there's been a lot of puzzling for me about like how do people work how do you how do you make those relationships and in a way you know it's had to be a bit intellectual I get how to do the deep stuff it's the it's the social stuff that I don't get so much oh I so resonate with that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's it's a funny it's a funny thing to grow up with and to, to have to learn that way yeah um, but I think that, and I also think that, you know, our, our relationship has really fed into that hugely because we're very, very different in some ways. And we're also very strongly aligned. And it's been really tough at times. And we've, mm. we're in, you know, counselling for years and years and years because it was the only way we could stay together. We really wanted to stay together, but we fought all the time. So there's this kind of like years long practice of what's that about? Why? Why why is that happening? And kind of really sort of really deeply researched and embodied understanding of how trauma works, of how the fact that, you know, 
issues that happened in my childhood make me react throughout my entire adult life in particular ways because I don't see um, reality how it is. Insert, you know, once I've been triggered, suddenly I'm seeing a different thing happen. And that's all of us. We need to say that this everybody. Once you're triggered, you're seeing the old history. Yeah, exactly. You're no, you're no longer in the present moment. And that really is the, you know, for me is the crux of why, why politics, you know, our collective decision making that is like the most important decisions that we make are the ones that we make on behalf of all of us why we have to get an understanding of how of that particular mechanism within us into politics because if we don't it means that we can just kind of thrash about and for for those in the ruling class the the thrashing about is done with well actually for everybody you you can't feel empathy when you're triggered you only are seeing this old, painful, horrible story where you're the victim and everyone else is awful, and um, it, it you're just not in a position to make good decisions, um, and you shouldn't be allowed. <laughs> you shouldn't be allowed to. <laughs> and this is where I kind of get, you know, I I haven't by any means got it all figured out, and I don't know how we can build a politics that really brings that understanding in. But I think it's that we need different people involved in politics. We need mm -hmm. people who have got that self-reflexivity, who've got that understanding of themselves, for whom it's not a massive threat to the entire edifice of this kind of socially constructed personality to say, oh, my God, mm -hmm. yes, that was something that was all about me and I need to go away and think about it and I'll be back you know, or, or, or whatever it is, but it's that kind of ability to understand your own process and be open and honest and vulnerable about it that that means we can trust people in those in those situations. And that is such a different politics. That looks completely and utterly different. Yes. I so I have a quote from the paper which I think for me sums up at least part of it. And it's the extent to which we believe that we are separate individuals, that the earth can be owned, that our hearts are not as wise as our heads and our bodies are incapable of thought, that those in power are there because they know best. All this and more is our colonial inheritance and it is this alienation from ourselves, one another and our land that makes it possible for the ruling class to tear up our communities, wreck our lands, and poison our air. And apart from the fact that I think your writing is utterly beautiful, um, can we dive a little bit more deeply into what you say in the paper about that utter dissociation of self from other, that particularly our ruling classes seem deliberately to perpetuate? That the, the public school system, which in any other country would be called a private school system, is designed to crush empathy from people and then to train them to take control. Mm. Yes, yes. As I was thinking about it, I was thinking, yes, this is a, a formula for how you grow people who can maintain power. And it doesn't always work. It frequently doesn't work. You know, you get a lot of people who are casualties of that system. Yeah. You know, normally absolutely 
lovely, delightful people who've been deeply, deeply hurt by their experience of being taken out of their families at age seven um, and sent to these places where where part of the, uh, you know, I, d- I doubt that it's even, I haven't been to one, um, but I doubt that it's, it's expressed uh, overtly. But part of the agenda is to humiliate um, mm. people around their sensitivity and their vulnerability. So that's the bit that they have to root out. That's the bit that has to get completely controlled and the resulting ability to empathize yeah. with other people. Because if you empathize with other people, you can't possibly maintain power over them. Yeah. You, you yeah. want them to have as good a life as you have. Yeah. You, the, whole, <laughs> the whole structure of inequality would crumble yeah. if right. those who are at the top had access to their empathy yeah. fully. Because, yeah, because we don't want that for other people. And I think the way that the, the kind of... Um, the colonial mindset has kind of filtered through to all of us. Just you know, it, it, it's based in our in our history and our um, the fact that we needed we need to be co opted into agreeing that that's the way we do things and there isn't any other way. Yeah, there is no alternative. Yeah, we get taught it in a in a really embodied way at school. I mean, I think we can also be taught it in our families in different ways. Um, but less so, you know, the whole thing about sitting in your seat, about listening to the teacher and shutting up and not, you know, not talking about what you want to talk about, talking about what the, the teacher says and coming up with the right answer and, hmm. you know, doing what you're told or you, lots of, lots of things which, you know, aren't part of the curriculum, but are part of the experience of being in school. Yeah. And, you know, it's all inside. That, you know, we do now have kind of attempts at, at forest schooling, which are amazing. And it will be interesting to see if, you know, if there are kids who've gone through that for their whole schooling, whether that whether there are, you know, interesting, interesting fallout from that. I have had a number of those as in my shamanic students of, of grown people now who have their own children and they were forest schooled and they are remarkable people. Yeah. And I think one of the great things about COVID, the lockdown is so many more people are homeschooling now. They started during lockdown and they're not sending their kids back to school, um, certainly around here. Um, and and, and you know, ordinary farm workers who just decided that, that actually that school was damaging their children so badly and their children are so much happier not going that they, they're just never going to send them back. Wow. Yeah, That's co- amazing. COVID was amazing that way, really, wasn't it? So yeah. Well, it, just, yeah. it just reminded me that um, somewhere I read, because we homeschooled our, our, our eldest um, until he wanted to go to school. And yeah, <laughs> uh, reading something about when they introduced compulsory schooling, <laughs> just how devastating it was for families. And they were, you know, it had to be compulsory. Well, People wouldn't send their kids. It's to like school. Fred Matei is talking about being taken off your land. It's yes. the same thing. You're being yes. taken from your family, being forced into an inhuman context. However much teachers are teaching you wonderful, and what they do is absolutely wonderful in yeah. that in that context. Now, it is a context of separation and of isolation yeah. where you're learning to compete. Your exam mark, you know, as we saw with that exams fiasco, you know, if you're in one particular school, your exams will be pushed down because, of course, you are not as good as others. So there's this whole structuring that goes right the way through in that way. That's I guess for me, there's something about keeping in mind the two strands. So there's one about that that infancy experience mm. and that abandonment, and then that mm. gets played through school and so on. Um, and then the other is that colonial experience out there. And it's mm. for me, the paper was really interesting when I read 
he was first draft fit is bringing those two together that you're actually mm-hmm. rather than oh we're dealing with the personal here are we oh what's going on for you? how do we heal that oh now we're doing something political it's such no these are two separate worlds they've been made in separate worlds and that's the problem that's where the problem starts mm. you know, you're either in your personal world or you're in that world but we actually need to, need to heal that yes and the ancestral lines because for me this goes back to the romans mm-hmm. the, for our colonization the, the kind of first wave that we know of was when we had a very rigidly patriarchal structure that broke up a tribal structure and started creating, you know, a woman is a chattel, ownership of which passes from her father to her husband. None of which was, as far as we know, and and everything we know about the tribal structure before that was that it was much more egalitarian, that ownership was of a, of a human being was anathema. Mm. And we have 2,000 years of Romanization, which we then spread around the world, of people are valued by their monetary worth. And you can buy and sell people. And even if you're not buying and selling them as slaves, you, those with the money treat those without the money as, you know, in Marxist terms, a w- ways of producing. Mm. And, and that's it. They are, they are items of production. So healing the ancestral line seems to me also quite important because I hear you that we come in with you know, a living vital force that wishes to be whole. But my experience within the shamanic world and now I'm training as a homeopath is a lot of people turn up also with ancestral lines mm. that, that somehow we need to heal as well and that doing the work of that can make an extraordinary difference in people's lives. It's hugely important. You know, exactly what you were saying about you know, the, the way that people live indigenously is, is hugely connected to their ancestors. And and yet, often when we think about our ancestors, we bounce right off again going, Jesus, you know, what did my ancestors do? Mm. Yeah. What, what, what did they get up to? Because it wasn't good. No, but it wasn't good. Was it? I mean, that's so when we're looking at ancestors, we're looking at colonialists. You know, we're looking at people who have been, whether they've been suffering it in factories mm. and, mm. and it consequently, yes. or whether they've been perpetuating it from the top, they've never been really damaged. I mean, if I think about, you know, my ancestral lines going back, I can see real damage happening there, you know, and, and so, but you need to look beyond that, which is why I guess I was thinking when you spoke, spoke about the medieval, looking beyond that to actually what was healthy, <laughs> you know, so it's not that far back. It's not very many, I mean, certainly in Scotland, we didn't have the Romans um, and, and same in Ireland. So it's like, it's, you know, it's a much less distance back, but the, that enclosure period in England and then the clearances in Scotland that were preparing people, getting them off the land for the colonial project was was absolutely vicious but yeah reconnecting in that way getting out of the way and i guess that's what the covid thing when you said that getting out of the way and allowing people to actually go oh i have a park around the corner from me Mm -hmm. ah there are birds singing oh my child is actually nice to be with you know it's like just getting out of the way then everything replenishes and comes up it doesn't the nature of the whole beast is it's a beautiful miracle to be alive and then we put this horrible system on that we think we're dependent on when we're absolutely not but we put, we're kind of conned into that which is which is the trauma really mm. yes and and rob hopkins maybe i think he's quoting somebody else but that the failure of our culture is a, a failure of the imagination because it is easier to imagine the total extinction of humanity and pretty much every other species than it is to imagine a different model to the one we have now because because our trauma holds us in this very linear structure where we're trying to survive within the current model rather than trying to create a new one. However, but Mr. Fuller says the way to you know to change things is to create a new model that makes the old model obsolete mm-hmm. rather than trying to fight the old one. So the paper I felt really, really deeply 
gave us insight into ourselves, into our ancestry, into our cultural metatrauma, which is then perpetuated in the utterly dysfunctional governance systems that we have in the West. How do you see us moving beyond that? Because towards the end of the paper, you began to look at alternatives. So I'd really like for people listening to have a sense of what's possible, what we can do individually, and more importantly, I think what we can do collectively to really begin to to change it, the trajectory of the oil tanker. It feels like a lot of those pieces are already there. Mm-hmm. You know, I did a training in sociocracy a couple of years ago, and it's it's hugely illuminating in in how you know we can organize ourselves, and it's highly organized. You know, it there's. Although it's, you know, I think it can be seen as a bit sort of hippie. It's like it's very highly structured um, how we can organize ourselves horizontally. And there are elements of verticality within that. Um, but it, they are often, so, is it, so yeah, so sociocracy is a, is a, a way of organizing ourselves. It, in general, it's used in, in organizations um, and it has applications right down to the kind of meeting at the meeting level, and then right up to the kind of meta-structure of our, our organisation. And it offers systemic ways of of re-envisioning how meetings or bigger structures might work. Yes, yes. So it, it, it organises in circles, and, and there is a hierarchy, and it's a hierarchy of circles. But right. at each level of the hierarchy, there are links, um, double links. So there's a link that comes from the circle above, um, and there's a link person who comes from the circle below, and they work together to make sure that communication and also expression of needs and priorities goes in both directions. Right. Um, so a circle above can appoint somebody to be a member of a circle below, but that has to be accepted. That person has to be accepted by the, the circle below, and if they don't like that person or don't feel that they're doing their job properly, then they can say so. Can I just come in? Just yeah. So we tend to think of meetings as boring. So when you're talking about meetings there, I can imagine people listening, thinking, well, yeah, meetings, God help us. circles." But David Graeber, the anthropologist of the imagination who died recently, mm. he had this lovely thing about meetings and just how much he loved meetings, meetings that where people are being, he hated university meetings, but he loved meetings where people are collectively, equally gathering to imaginatively think through what's next to make decisions. So I just wanted to mm. infuse that in the spirit of what mm, you're saying. Yeah. These are meetings of real people as full human beings who are passionate about what they're doing or pissed off or angry or whatever. But these are real people meeting, not people as kind of representing things. And yeah, people functioning as people. Yes, and they're great. People are fantastic yeah, and fascinating. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah, really important kind of element that uh, that is part of that is is how much we differentiate between ourselves as people and ourselves in our roles. Hmm. Um, and and it's become really clear to me that w- one of the reasons that we've been able to get into this situation particularly you know climate change is my my particular issue that i get my thinkers in the twist about um (laughs) is that you know people are people are making decisions as their role Mm. so Mm. i'm you know i'm ceo of this organization i have these responsibilities or i'm a civil servant in this role um you know in this highly stratified hierarchical system you know i can't say i'm not allowed to say that I'm absolutely fucking terrified or I don't know what to do or I'm really frightened for my kids. 
Yeah, because I'll lose my job yeah. and they'll get someone who doesn't say that, even though they may feel the same. Exactly. There's a really good study of politicians in Westminster who, who know what the crisis is like in terms of the climate, but don't voice it because they can't because they're role. And then scientists themselves yeah. who don't who don't say in public what they say in the pub or in private because they right. feel like it's too, it's not acceptable. So there's some incredible disconnect between mm. this public realm where only a certain paradigm is allowed to be spoken about, which is really that everything's okay apart from a few things we need to sort, rather than this system is fundamentally corrupt and vicious and really nasty to us and we need to really change, transform that and then the rest will sort themselves. It's a very yeah. different place to kind of go, we are really wonderful rather than we're awful. This system is really appalling. It's, it's a switch in terms of what we've been taught. We've been taught that really we're not really good enough and we need to try and succeed within the system. It's actually, no, no, that's not really helping you guys. Okay. And we, we thought for a long, or I thought, I bought into the concept that citizens' assemblies would really make a difference because you're bringing larger groups of people together. You've, you've got that ability to bring different voices into the room. And I was desperately disappointed mm. by the output of the Citizens' Assembly brought together by by Westminster. It it felt like the worst kind of muzzling had happened in that process. And I'm sure the hundred people who took part came away with, with broader perspectives. Mm. But was that, do you think, I don't, you may not have an insight into it, but was it the nature of citizens' assemblies, or was it the way in which that particular one had been convened? It's a little bit of both. I mean, Justin has a massive perspective on this because he's actually involved in, the, in a, a stewarding group of a Scottish citizens. Oh, excellent. Oh, do tell. I would just, I just want to say before, and you, while you group your thoughts and think about what you can and can't share on that, <laughs> um, is citizens' assemblies, yeah, I, I, I am interested that they're being used so badly hmm. and and whether it's almost I, I think so much of this is unconscious but whether it's almost an attempt to uh prove that there's no other way that this great idea that people have come up with that doesn't work either um i think that they're partial and they need a lot of improvement but they're absolutely brilliant i think they're hmm. great because they bring together people who don't have vested interests you are not in role, they're there as human beings, to be well informed by people across the spectrum um, and uh, and to deliberate together, to take time, to be facilitated, all the things that are, are crucial to making good decisions. Mm. Having it, All of those things are crucial. And they worked in Ireland, the two yeah. citizens' assemblies that brought us the two referenda of, of gay marriage and, and the right to choose or whatever we call it. Those seem to me really functional examples of of the best but they emerged out of a movement so they weren't they weren't appointed by government government did make them happen uh, right. but they emerged from a movement right. and then their results were pushed through by a movement so they came from the ground up right now the problem with right. xr as you can see from the badge we're both involved in xr um, it makes demands of government to do these things. And government, though Eve is absolutely right, that citizen assemblies can be fantastic, precisely because people are there as themselves without any other agenda but to really consider the issue and decide what they feel about it. So they've not got some other secret. They can, well, they can have whatever agenda they want, but they're, they're going to be there just as human beings trying to understand it in their diversity. The problem is who's setting it up? Mm -hmm. Who's choosing the experts? Who's facilitating? And so I'm involved in the stewarding group of the Scottish government's Climate Citizen Assembly had another meeting yesterday and I can't really say very much um, mm. and I'm feeling a bit traumatised. <laughs> Actually interesting, kind of having this podcast and kind of thinking, well, yeah, this is pretty hard stuff because 
you know, what you're wanting is a space where people can really consider the alternatives, not a space where the alternatives they're given, as in the UK Citizen Assembly, were so narrow. It was all basically how do we fulfill what we've already agreed to in, in a way that will be acceptable to you. And what they've agreed to, when they went to 100% zero, you know, zero emissions by 2050, that was done by a trick of accountancy, by increasing the amount that we would imagine we could draw down through technological yes. means by an, another 40%. So it's just business as usual carrying on, presented as being something radical. And then citizens are asked to contribute, and they did wonderfully. And you could hear the citizens afterwards, really, they'd really been thinking about stuff. But within this very narrow confine, and it happened with the French Climate Citizen Assembly too, they, the citizens there all wanted to talk about economics. That's what they want to look at, because that's the driver. And that was put on a shelf. Oh, great. How can we continue to grow? And when, when Jim Bendel is not invited to speak, you know that, that it's it's pretty darn narrow, the, the parameters within which they're looking. Totally. And, but I'm saying in France, they wanted to challenge economics. So what I meant was oh, I see. citizens oh, wanted right. to challenge that. Oh, okay. So at the end of the first day, they heard about the climate. They all went into groups. All 25 tables wanted to talk about the fact that the profit-driven motive economic growth is the problem. But that wasn't allowed because that wasn't within the remit. And and that's my concern about what we're, what certainly in the UK one, that wasn't even on the table. In the Scottish one, right. we're looking to see whether that can be on the table. We're in negotiations now as to whether, because that's the fundamental, it's all expressed through economics. You know, the politics is, is, is what we're describing now, but the other aspect is that economic aspect that really drives through. So, so yes, if they can be held well, and I think that means it's citizen-led, not government-led, with government invited to be part of on the table and businesses invited to every else, but it's citizens who are who are running it. It's facilitated at real depth and the, and the, the way of creating it is a deliberative process itself. Mm-hmm. That's what's the key. Right. It's actually deliberation that creates that rather than a experts creating it. So, mm-hmm. yeah, experts of all sorts welcome, but it's got to be a deliberation process. Mm-hmm. I'm yeah. a bit passionate about that because I'm just... No, no, it's good. And and so exactly that. If you have not got the capacity as a member of the Assembly to call in people and you're told who you're going to be able to listen to, then that, I would have thought, undermines the entire process. But that's what I'm hearing is that you're having to negotiate to be able to call in the people that you want to listen to. Well, I'm, no, I'm, t- I'm on the steering group shaping what the Citizen Assembly will do. Okay. So, okay. yeah, we're negotiating over who they will be able to hear because who they hear first, then what we want is the range. I want the range of people I really don't agree with mm-hmm. and the range yeah. of people I really agree. I think, so I'm not asking for my lot to be there. I'm asking for the range to be there and then citizens to decide because I may, you know, I think they'll come up with something very different to what any of us would say if they have the chance to think about it. It's not, yeah, there's a creative leap of imagination that can happen in that space. Mm-hmm. So I totally believe in them, but I totally believe they can be captured. Okay, so we have sociocracy, we have citizens' assemblies. If you two were to sit down today and the Scottish government were to say, let's let's have a happy fantasy of, <laughs> okay, we've had a referendum, we have declared independence, then, and we want Eva and Justin to create the new model of a governance system that works, what would it look like? Can I just say, I think, yeah, I think what we would do is we would be creating a kind of a process for people to come together to decide that. Yeah, right. So just as I say, it's not it's not for anybody to decide, but it's it is creating the deliberative process that allows that to happen. And actually, I'd really like us to start doing that soon because independence isn't that far off, and it's much better to do that sooner rather than later. And that's part of kind of what we're looking at in terms of the steps ahead. But that's. I mean, I don't, go into that larger picture or not yeah yeah absolutely. yes let's that's what that article was for and that's why we didn't put you know we could have like put some extra work into it and turned it into a book or we could have like gone around touting it and trying to get it into get other people to publish it but the point of it was that it's a working document right it's about making the change and and what we're using it to do is to kind of initiate conversations with people about you know so so how do we make this how do we make this happen how do we 
shift our uh, our governance structures to you know giving us a, a hope in hell of coming up with um, a, a commensurate response to the kind of threats that we're now facing. And are you getting traction? Because I imagine the vested interest is digging its vested heels in quite hard to remain in control. Oh well, um, we're not. Can I, can I start coming there on the? Yeah, go I, for it. So, so we kind of we're doing a hundred interviews, a group of us, a hundred mm. interviews over lockdown, wow. with wow. people from all backgrounds to kind of get an understanding of what is it that really people, what is it they feel is 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 at risk here? What's what's the challenge? What's the crisis for them? As opposed to for us, climate is kind of very paramount. But we're aware of all the other crises, but that's just what was because that seems to be the one that's really been missing for quite a long time. Um, but so, so ask people, what is the crisis? Why do you think it's happening? How should we go about responding to it? And on the basis of those interviews, we're, we're looking at inviting people to people's assemblies. So we're looking at having two or three people's assemblies that really look at these issues. And we've got meetings later today around this. But just looking at how can we gather people to really consider what is it, what is the system that, what is the problem of the system that's facing us and how do we transform it and then we're looking at moving from that either feeding into the climate citizen assembly that's happening in Scotland and away from the government but i think this idea of a constitutional convention that's looking for well how do we reconstitute ourselves as a society maybe a path we take it's all this is all you're you're coming in just in the middle of everything nothing's finished as he said it's a working document and it's working thinking but we're also connecting with people across the world at the moment and that's another aspect because unless this happens globally Yes. You can't do it just for the Cree in Canada. You can't do it for indigenous people somewhere. You can't do it in Nicaragua. You can't do it in Rojava. You can't do it in any place. It will get crushed unless we do it collectively. So we're looking at how do you build to a, a molten global moment where we collectively realize that it's up to us. It's not up to a system or a government. They're incapable of taking the action needed. They can't. By definition, they can't because they've gone through this structured process where the trauma is really driving them, however well-intentioned they are. So we're looking at how do we build over a two-year period to a global moment, which could be a citizens' assembly, could be some kind of form that will draw off all sorts of traditions and cultures and backgrounds. But it's a collective moment of decision-making where we, as people, decide what happens next and governments either agree or they need to be removed. But unless we have that level of ambition, unless we actually go for it, I don't mean we, you, me and you, I mean we collectively. So us, us, us and us. Yes, everybody listening and all of their friends and everybody they know. Totally. No, And, and I know, talking to people in, in Africa that I work with, for example, I mean, they're totally up for the, the kind of... This needs to happen. There's no other way around this, but actually switching off the bulldozer in the cabin right in there, just turning that off, and then things can flourish. But if we don't get in there, if we just protest outside it or kind of complain or say, could you drive that way, not this way, Mm. the bulldozer continues. It has to stop. And I don't know if you want to talk about the cause. Mm. Well, yeah, I guess what I wanted to say is is that we're we're picking up on the, the, um, you know, exactly that Buckminster Fuller quote that, you know, we're we're trying to create another system that will make the old one obsolete. So we're not really at this stage interested in or trying to challenge. We're trying to create other systems to give people an experience of what decision making can be like. Um and that is something that we're building along the way. So we're we're going to build it in Scotland um this year and we're going to start building it sort of collectively in a in a gathering internationally early next year. Um, which will be the first of several, so that so that we're deeply, deeply informed by people from all different kinds of cultures and backgrounds and 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 you know national situations. Um, and even if we do have a kind of global moment in in a year or two of you know a global citizens assembly, that will probably just be the first of several. Although it's kind of a bit strange to be focusing on that global yeah. level when it's actually the local that's the most important. Yeah. But in a way, it's like getting getting into the cabin of the bulldozer. I like that analogy and, and switching it off. 
that you have to do at the global level mm. but it's to make space yeah. for or for ordinary people in their places to mm. go this is this is how we need you know this is what we need to have a good life mm. yeah and then you have a constitutional convention or that's an idea that we might can you just speak a little bit to what that looks like and feels like well that's well i mean that that would be just for here so that's something about scotland i mean it's what he was saying that's really important that every place will have its own way mm-hmm. of going about this you know and so in scotland i mean on the western isles now 75% of people are living on community land now community land's been coming back strongly since mm-hmm. the parliament so you know, that was one of the first acts was the was the land reform act and though it hasn't been at all as strong as it should have been it's really been a compromise now there's a huge amount has happened and that's that realization i remember being on a bus in 1998 just before the the referendum on whether we'd have a, a parliament or not and hearing people behind me saying well if egg could do it which is a small island of like at that time of 50 people then surely we can too and there's something about the power of example of just showing how so what he was saying there about what matters it happens on the ground in different places and it will happen in different ways in different places so that idea of a constitutional convention process is just one idea of what might happen here in scotland these people's assemblies can then can can work out i'm just i would be bringing that as a suggestion so we're not in any way doing anything but trying to propose and suggest and then be met by people who say yes, no, shift, change. And it's a deliberative process right the way through. Mm. But I'm thinking of people who have the misfortune not to live in Scotland yet. What can we be doing to help accelerate this process in our own localities, in our own political structures, at work, at home, in our communities, in our villages, in our towns? What are the things that people listening could get out and start doing tomorrow? Well, uh, we're planning to make what we've done into a kind of pack. Okay, an action pack. Yeah, an action pack. So people can copy what we did, which is really straightforward. We basically just went out and interviewed people who we thought were different to us. And we were looking for their analysis and their language. And we were looking for a a kind of understanding of where the system hits them because it hits all of us in different places. We want to be able to articulate this at a systemic level. So climate change is just a symptom, just like poverty and racism and homelessness and refugees. They're all they're all products of a of a system that's not working. And if we can find the way ways to speak to people in their own language about the bit of the system that's impacting on them and invite them in that way into a conversation which is wider, which is about the various impacts of the system. It's like we're fed up of having conversations where we're just speaking to people who see the world like we do. Yes. We need to be able to have conversations across difference. You know, we have a great tendency not to trust each other and to put each other in boxes and and other very quickly. Um, So, you know, so someone who speaks like, you know, with my accent often gets written off as, you know, middle class do-gooder or whatever you know and and I can do that too I, I have done that and, and that's how I understand that that mechanism so it's like ha- actually getting into a relationship with people having real conversations with real people um with a kind of a sense of earnestness and respect um for where they're coming from and you know if they're saying things that we can't handle like you know it's immigrants that are the problem then not just bouncing off that, but digging into that experience. And like, what is underneath that? Because underneath that is a human being that's had some bad stuff happening and has been persuaded, you know, quite often by by mainstream media, um, that it's a certain bunch of people's fault. And we need to be able to have those those conversations without bouncing off each other and blaming each other, but deepening our understanding. Because at the bottom, what we get to is we're all human beings. We all want a good life. 
but actually we also want one another to have a good life too. Mm. And although we will always have difference because that's that's what being human is about, we also we can find solutions to our our problems, but they need to include everybody. They can't be imposed from above. They have to be through conversation, uh, respectful conversations, equals. So, so it begins by listening. Yeah, really, is what you're saying. So it's not. It's not. We found it wasn't even conversation because we were then learning that it, we're not. It's not conversation. We're trying to really listen. Mm. So for me, shutting up can be hard, you know, and actually really listening and not bouncing in in response. So mm. yeah, you'll be you'll have learned this from doing what you do in this podcast, having to listen, you know. So you're, and I think, but I think the skill you have is one that we all need to learn. It's like how do we really deeply listen and be really engaged and interested in others who are very different to us uh, and really. So it's relearning empathy in that very practical way. It's a practical skill, which then leads to people's assemblies and all sorts of other things which we can go into. But unless that initial bit is done, then the rest means nothing. It's just that step. There's not some magic thing over there that will say that it's us being being fully human in connection with others who can allow to be fully human through our connectedness with them. How far through your 100 interviews are you at the time of recording? Oh, they're, they're, they're done. They've done the 100. And did you find... Have you changed internally in ways that you could pinpoint as a result? Has, has, have any of your ideas markedly shifted or have they deepened or something different? Yeah, you, you had a, a kind of really strong response, didn't you? To... Well, where I found that I hadn't been listening to, I, I interviewed <laughs> some people that I knew well and I discovered that I hadn't, hadn't been listening to people that I knew well, you know, that I hadn't really listened to them. And that's why I made the emphasis about conversation. It was because of me. <laughs> it's like, oh, wow. What riches there are there if I really listen even to my friends. So there's something about setting this up as an interview where you're saying, what are the major challenges that we face? Why do you think they're happening? How should we act in response to them? Really simple questions, but really fundamental ones. And people can take them at whatever level. It could be just challenges in their life, or it could be challenges in the world or in society, whatever, 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 whatever challenge means to them or crisis means to them. And I was just astonished by the depth of, the amazing depth that I was getting from people. And the COVID period allowed for people to be really, in that early period, really vulnerable, really tender, really aware of our mortality, mm. really aware that we're bodies in this world and it's amazing that we are. It's, the birds are singing and wow, but also really aware of how vicious the system is and how unequal it is and how mm. inequality is just smashing people so visibly in a way and, and how key workers are, are not the bosses and the politicians, but the people who make the food and deliver the food and who do the nursing and the care. And it was just so obvious that none of this is needed apart from apart from the relationships of care and, and, and nurturing, which is where we really got this strong notion of, of, a, of a pause, of calling a pause, that if this work towards a kind of global moment happens, it's like wanting to turn that bulldozer switch off and have a two-year pause where we're no longer doing anything apart from activity that we need to care for each other and to be able to be fed and warm. And we need a two-year holiday collectively across the world. Right. And most people will be much better off because they will be, you know, they'll be being fed, they'll be being whatever. But but and then some people won't have the great riches that they have. But it's just a two-year pause where we redesign how we be together, informed by empathy. And I guess the last thing I want to say was coming back from uh, one of the Extinction Rebellion when I was arrested in London, walking oh, back wow. at four in the morning to the kind of camping out and, at Parliament Square. It was really lovely. It was kind of dawn was coming and, and, and there were birds just started singing and there was this banner across the encampment and it just said empathy. And I thought that's a political banner I can get behind. And I think that's really all. That's the banner that we're behind. Yes. Wow. Was that this year, last year? 
that was this year. Well, I, was, I don't know, this year and November, last year. November last year. Was it November we, were, last year? Mm-hmm. we didn't go down to London this year, did we? No. Uh, we've been doing it here. Yeah. We've been doing it here, but don't tell anybody what I've been doing. No, no. I probably was on the same streets, but I wasn't arrested. Yeah, so. yeah. Um, but something came out of that. So this idea of a two-year circuit break, we haven't got very long before we hit our hour. That seems to me fundamental. It might be that that's a whole other podcast, actually. In fact, if you're up for that, mm. could we leave that for another podcast? Because I think there's so much in that idea and exploring its parameters and exploring what do we do? How how does money change the way that it works? Mm. What services are basic and, and what ones can we not just stop without you know the entire life force falling off the edge of a cliff? That would be so interesting. So in our last few closing minutes... We've covered an awful lot of ground. Can we look at what for you are the key arguments or concepts that we have now that will take us towards where we need to be? So, yeah, it feels like where we're heading with all of this is a conversation or argument about where legitimacy lies. We're used to and we have all agreed that legitimate decision making lies within our parliamentary systems and processes. We haven't disagreed loudly enough, <laughs> more more recently enough. Yeah. Yeah. But I haven't heard anybody saying that that's the wrong, that's, that's the wrong place to have legitimacy in the first place. Mm. And for me, the, the idea of citizen-led citizens' assemblies and people's assemblies, which are, are a little bit different, and maybe just to kind of dig into that a little bit in a sec, um, so, so ones that aren't initiated by government, because government is not capable, like Justin said earlier, they're not actually capable of giving up enough of their idea of power to make the decisions that need to be made. But if we manage to create uh, decision-making processes that are really transparent, that are really inclusive, that are you know, emotionally intelligent... Uh, that you know that, that basically we can show, we can prove, have been as as thorough and rigorous as they could possibly be. Why are those not as legitimate as anything that our governments might come up with? And that's really the the kind of that's our bid to to right. shift where power lies from basically a, a, a kind of captured elite to those of us who are willing to put the time and effort uh, uh, and and we can you know make that possible for people who um who might struggle to but those who are willing to bring their whole selves to the table and actually engage with one another in difficult conversations and thinking processes but for the benefit of all of us so one particular way of doing that is through this kind of interaction between people's assemblies and citizens assemblies so people's assemblies are simply a gathering of anybody who is passionate about an issue or a place and who wants to be there to contribute their ideas, their anger, their feelings, their love, their thoughts, their whatever else. So they, people assemblies are welcome to anybody to come who cares about an issue or about a place. And then citizen assemblies are very different in that they are, they're a risk because they are a, a randomly selected representative sample of a population. So it could be, you know, in the case of the Scottish government's climate citizen assembly, it's a hundred citizens from across Scotland you know, weighted by gender and age and ethnicity and, you know, various things. But, um, you know, so it's representative samples, not just random. 
So the, the key with that is that it's actually a risk. And, and with elections, they're in theory a risk. You know, the legitimacy comes from a risk taking. That's where legitimacy comes from. Dictatorships are not legitimate. They, they have power, they have control. They don't have legitimacy because there's no sense that people have put them in place in any way. And so the, the parliamentary system comes from the notion of, you know, there's a risk happening. But what we've seen is there's very little risk happening. People are captured. Politics is captured. There's no sense, really, that they're, they're with us. And that's through the interviews we were doing, the 100 interviews, the sense of the illegitimacy mm. of of politics, despite the fact we've got much more reasonable politics up here than down south, it's still not able to respond in the way that it needs to, uh, to people's real needs. So with a citizens' assembly, it's a risk because our thinking is what you have is people's assemblies that then put proposals forward to citizens' assemblies. So people who are passionate about something come up with a range of views, put those forward to citizens' assemblies who then consider, consider those. So you can have a dynamic there where that's how parliament could be. You could have people's assemblies at one level, you'd have citizens' assemblies at another, you have a very there are many ways of going into it, but that, that dynamic can really work. It allows for the risk to happen because unless you have trust, you don't have a really legitimate body and trust requires risk-taking. You don't mm. trust somebody if you control them. You only trust them because you don't have control over them, but you're trusting they'll act with your good interests. You know, risk, trust involves, it involves developing empathy rather than control. It involves taking risks rather than control. You know, it's a really, trust is at the heart of that legitimacy and, and therefore risk needs to be. So that's one way of doing what you were describing. Mm. Brilliant. And in the process just in the last closing moments, in the process of creating the, either the people's or the citizens' assemblies, do you have facilitators there to help people to find the ways to have the difficult conversations, either through sociocracy or or other more modern socio-technologies? Absolutely. The, the, facil- the facilitation role is crucial. And it's, you know, in some ways it's it's slightly the, the weak link because it's a very powerful position. But so so facilitators will need to have a huge amount of that kind of that that property of self reflexivity. Um, uh, yeah, but they yes, increasingly I think are able to help people to 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 create context for conversations that are as little triggering as possible, so that people feel safe, they feel relaxed, they feel like their voices are going to get heard but they're not going to get swamped by other people. So all of those things, are, are, are you need facilitators to create those contexts. And then within those, to have the kind of emotional intelligence to notice when people are getting triggered and to know what to do about it. Mm. So that's an, another strand of the work that I'm picking up at the moment in Scotland and, and really want to kind of dig into is what does that facilitator role look like mm. and what does it need in order to both create, create safety and to be safe itself. Yeah. That, I think, is a fantastic place to end, that concept of creating safe spaces where all the conversations that need to be had can happen. And then you get the creativity mm-hmm. because you can't be creative if you feel unsafe. Absolutely. So if we can build safe spaces where conversations can happen and then decisions can arise from intelligent, deep, authentic conversation, then we can shift the reality that we have. Yeah. Thank you so much, people. That is absolutely fantastic. I look forward to our second podcast all about our two-year circuit break. Thank you. Lovely. So nice to speak to you. So that's it for another week. Huge thanks to Eva and Justin for their groundbreaking work that will help us to change the legitimacy of our democratic processes and so wholly change the future of how our systems work. Really, if we can find ways to bring humanity and empathy back into our structures, then we're well on the way to making Bucky Fuller's dream 
of creating an alternate reality that makes the old reality obsolete. And more than obsolete, we will be creating a vision of a way of being that is so obviously healing and safe, inspiring, relaxing, creative, confidence-building for all of us, that it becomes obviously the way forward. We're transmitting this towards the end of October 2020, and we will include as much as we can in the show notes of the Action Pack and everything else that Eva and Justin are putting together. It is likely that we will be adding to this over the next weeks and months, so please do keep checking back to the podcast section of accidentalgods.life where you will find the show notes for each podcast under their individual sections. We will be back next week with another conversation. In the meantime, thanks, as ever, to Caro C for the music at the head and foot of the podcast and for the sound production. Thanks to Faith Tillery for being the other half of the creative team that is Accidental Gods and for designing the website. If you want to visit us there, that address again is accidentalgods.life. You'll find the show notes, the other podcasts, the visualisations and meditations in the resources section, and the Accidental Gods membership programme, which is a structured training designed to give everybody the opportunity to connect to the web of life with integrity, authenticity and grounding so that we can become integral to the conscious evolution of humanity. So if you know of anyone who would like to be active in being part of the change to the system that creates something so new that we all want to join it, then please send them this link. And that's it for now. See you next week. Thank you and goodbye.